Our passage this morning is Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 33. That's page 527, if you're going to use the Bibles there in the seats. While you find our passage, I'll just briefly state that our new series is called um, Further In. We are looking at the wisdom of going deeper into God's Word, of examining uh, the topics of our life, whether our lives, whether our, our money, whether our words through the lens of not just what we easily know, but what God's word says for us true wisdom looks like. And we'll spend time in Proverbs as well as Ecclesiastes and other realms of uh, wisdom literature, but we're going to start with Proverbs chapter 1 as an introduction this morning. So let's together hear God's word, Proverbs 1 verses 1 through 33. Let's attend to the word of the Lord. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealings, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge, and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand the proverb and the saying, the words of the wise. And their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In a market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called you and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray that God would help us heed his word this morning. Gracious God, I come and seek to preach your word to your people, very much aware of the fact that I am not a wise man. And I pray, Lord, that I would be one hungry beggar who has found some bread, offering that same to others. Lord, together we come to you for your wisdom and for your instruction that you, Lord, would have your way with our hearts and our minds and our wills and our bodies. Lord, instruct us, not according to man's wisdom, not according to the limitations of this broken vessel, but according to the power of your spirit for your glory. Amen. This morning, as we begin looking at this passage, as we begin our time in the books of wisdom, we might be tempted to ask whether we have time for wisdom. Perhaps some of you have that reading schedule that gives us reading from the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Psalms, and then the Proverbs, and by the time in the morning when you are getting ready for the work of your day, you might say, yes, that's some good stuff, but I've read the necessary stuff. I'll come back to the Proverbs later. We might ask, do we have time for wisdom? I mean, let's take an honest look around us. The Supreme Court in our particular nation has set alight, again, a nation already at war with itself. We have seen places of worship, places of education that are meant to be havens, and places of safety become targets for violence. People cannot afford to fill up their tanks with gas, are struggling to buy groceries at the store, and the stores and restaurants can't find enough employees to make staying open worth it. Perhaps you might be saying, perhaps if I'm honest, I might be saying, maybe we don't need wise sayings and navel-gazing right now. We need solutions. We need action. We need good government policy. We need economic change. We need the right response to violence. It seems like we need those things. Until we take action, until we try to fix something and it doesn't work the way that we thought it would, then we have to ask, why didn't it work? Or why what has worked in the past did it not work in this particular occasion? What would have worked and why? Where sometimes our plans and our solutions, the action that we take does work. It fixes that particular problem only to introduce a whole new set of problems. We have, as one proverb says, jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire. Let me just use the hard household this week as an example. Typical things on our plate. Caring for children, making sure they're getting to bed on time, feeding them, having laundry clean for them, instructing them, getting to places they need to go, making meals, maintaining the home, making sure that the yard is, is cut, the grass short planning two worship services, preparing a sermon, meeting with congregants, 
There's a broken window in the garage waiting to be fixed. There's an ailing washing machine that is preventing the laundry that needs to get done from getting done. There's an upcoming remodel of the bathroom, a planned women's event on the same day as a child's birthday. It's a lot. It was a lot this week. And though the elements might be different, I'm sure many of you have had weeks just like that. So how do we tackle that week? Well, we jumped in. We put our nose down. We began doing the things that seemed to be needing to get done. But we didn't communicate. We didn't coordinate because we just had to get it done. The result? Hurt feelings because we assumed different priorities hurt feelings because in the assumption of different priorities it communicated that the priorities of the other person was not as important which then led to a tense discussion of those hurt feelings and a late evening 11:30 a night on which we needed to get more done we were discussing our feelings and not getting sleep and not accomplishing things taking the time to talk ahead of time about those competing priorities about what each of us thought needed to get done, making a plan. It would have taken time, but we'd say, we have to get it done. Instead, we ended up behind with less sleep, with less unity to accomplish the things that needed to get done. Now, the issue was not that I didn't know how to fix the hub in the washing machine. The issue was not that Rebecca didn't know how to make a strawberry cake for Gideon's birthday. The problem was that we did not pursue the many things that we had to do with the wisdom of communication and coordination. What we lacked was wisdom of applying what we know in the real world of competing interests, finite bodies, and limited time. In Scripture, God gives us the history describes how he made the world. He recounts for us by his spirit what went wrong and why we face so many problems in the world. He gives us the law and the prophets to tell us what is right and what is wrong and to warn us when we have confused the two. And he gives us wisdom to look at the world in which we live and to look at ourselves so that we can live in God's world well. At the very center of this morning's passage, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If we are to live in this world well, we must acknowledge that first and foremost, it's not our world, but it's God's. And that there's consequences for living in it in a way contrary to God's design. And so God, knowing us, knowing our limitations, knowing our confusion, knowing our short-sightedness, doesn't just give us history, doesn't just give us instruction, doesn't just give us the story of what he has done to fix things. He gives us wisdom that we might take that knowledge and live it well. And so in these opening sections, as we have this kind of introduction to the, an invitation to general wisdom, we have a warning from parents and then an invitation from wisdom personified. 
It will help us see why God gives us wisdom. To see what wisdom is for, who wisdom is for, and where we can find this wisdom. First, what is wisdom for? How does this passage show us what wisdom is for? Oftentimes we think and talk about wisdom as as sitting and thinking, wise thoughts. We describe it as navel-gazing because we just sit down and we ponder. Or perhaps we sit in ivory towers uh, studying lots of things far removed from the world. But as Proverbs, this book of wisdom opens up, it describes something far more practical, far more real to our real world. And it gives us a sampling of some of the purposes of wisdom. First, wisdom gives us the big picture. Verse 2 says, to know wisdom and instruction. We have the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealings in righteousness, justice, and equity. As it starts out, it says, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. There, notice the distinction between there are words of insight, there is the information But then there's the ability to understand it, to put it in its right place. As we live our lives, we are constantly taking in information. We're taking in input from the weather. We're reading the body language of other people. We have relationships. There's the information we learn at school. And they're all like pieces of a puzzle. But if you have ever tried to put a puzzle together without the picture in front of you, you know that that is a very difficult task. You might see some puffy white stuff and say, okay, here's a cloud. Maybe I can put a cloud together over here. Or or, this looks like a tree. I'll put this together over here. But without a sense of what the whole picture is, you're limited in what you can do with that information. Verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Because understanding that we live under a God who created this world, who governs this world, gives us an overarching understanding that this world is not just chaotic bits of information. It's not just happenstance, but there is an order, there is a purpose. And so the information we take in fits into a larger picture. There is a design. That when we have a sense that there is right and wrong, when we have a feeling that there is good and that there is better, when we feel like there should be value, we should have purpose, that we're not meant to just survive, when we get that sense, wisdom confirms that there is a God. And when we look to him first, then all of that information suddenly fits within a larger picture. Wisdom gives us understanding of that information. It gives us discernment to prioritize that information, to fit it in into the right places. God gives us purpose and a bigger picture so that we can place the information in the world into practice. It says so that in the introduction. As it opens up the the parental instruction in verses 8 through 19, it shows us that part of the purpose of wisdom is beauty. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Then verse 9 for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. What does a garland accomplish? 
What does a pretty necklace get you? In a hard scrabble world, in a world where we're clawing for survival, does a garland on your head, does a pretty necklace accomplish anything? No. These are adornments. These are things meant to make something beautiful, attractive, desirable. Part of the purpose of wisdom is to speak to the reality that life is more than a utilitarian answering of the question, what works? What works to feed us? Well, we can just eat oatmeal and peanuts and beans every day. Or many of us would say it's much preferable to put those together in tasty ways. God says the world is not just pure circumstances. It has purpose. And the purpose is not just pure survival, but there is a sense into which we are to flourish in this world. Life has mystery. Life has beauty. Art and wonder are part of God's creative design. And so wisdom teaches us not to live for the bare essentials, but to seek a fullness of life. So very often, wisdom points to the fact that often what we need to consider is quality, not quantity. When the economics of life would say, what you just need is more knowledge, you just need more money, you just need more time. Forgetting the fact that no matter how much money, no matter how much time we have, many of us are still sad and yearning and hungering for more. God gives us wisdom to value what we tend to overlook and to recognize in the world that there is something that is beautiful because we have a beautiful God who designed it with majesty, with, with, with intricacy. Sometimes we think that, that the more that we know, the more cynical we should be. You know, one of the things that wisdom does is it helps us see through through people who would deceive us, to see through things that would lead us to destruction. But, but wisdom that is biblical does not cause us to become the world's greatest skeptics, to always be frowning, to see what the catch is. Listening to the instruction and teaching of our parents in wisdom, the primary and first place we get wisdom, sets us up to live in a way that adorns our life with beauty to reflect the beauty of the God who made this world. God's wisdom gives us a sense of design. It gives us a sense of beauty. And those who receive instruction in wisdom promote justice. Look at verse 3. Not only are we to know wisdom and instruction, we are to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity. If you were to try to nominate someone or elect someone, if you live in a state where you elect a judge, do you want a foolish man or a wise man to be a judge? God doesn't just give us wisdom to fill our minds. He gives us wisdom so that we can bless and care for and protect other people by applying God's law, his instruction, the way he designed the world for the blessing and benefit and care of other people. So very often our impatience or our foolishness or our lack of understanding leaves other people hurt because we're focused 
on our priorities, on what benefits us, on our narrow slice of life. But true wisdom expands our horizon to what God desires, what God has designed, and what God declares for the benefit of other people. Without wisdom, we see the world through the lens of ourselves. But God reorders that lens to show us what is loving, what is compassionate, and what is just. Remember, the primary source of these Proverbs, even if Solomon didn't write them all but oversaw the collecting of these Proverbs, was as king. And when God offered Solomon great riches or great wisdom, Solomon knew that all the riches in the world would not be as much of a blessing to himself and to his kingdom as wisdom. And for all that we're told of Solomon's wisdom in Scripture, the basic example we have is a matter of justice. Two women claiming the same child. And he uses his wisdom to demonstrate who justly could claim that infant as their son. If you remember that passage, it's not just just for the otherwise wise, the otherwise important. Solomon used his wisdom to promote justice for two prostitutes fighting over an infant. God wants us to live in this world, this world where there is sin, where there is injustice, to be a sign of his blessing and goodness through the wisdom that he offers us. And so if we're to understand justice, then necessarily we're going to have to understand that there is evil and wickedness. The other thing that wisdom does is it warns us that there is evil, there is destruction, there is deception in the world, and it points to the ramifications. Because one of the things that we often do when we are in our foolishness is see just our action and not the consequences. This is really highlighted for us in the section of verses 8 through 19 as this parental wisdom is being given to the child. Now, some things are obvious for us, that there are bad people in the world. But oftentimes, the issue is not that we don't know that there's evil in the world, but that we are choose to ignore what we should already know. And so it warns of the evil that is obvious, the evil that is within, and the evil that is without. One of the ways that wisdom does this, that God points us to wisdom in Scripture, is by not saying bad and evil is always so obvious. You know, one of the, one of the dangers sometimes of, of, of horror movies or, or Halloween and these decorations is it, is it makes evil seem so apparent. Well, well, there's a person in a mask with horns wearing all black, pretty sure that's an evil person with bad intentions. But the devil in the garden came as the serpent who is the most clever and cunning of creatures. When our friends say, come with us, notice how scripture puts us in that position of peer pressure. It's one thing to say when you're sitting at home talking to your parents, no, if my parents, if my friends said they'd jump off a cliff, I'd never do it. But why do parents have to say that to their kids? Because there are times when you're with your friends. And they're making fun of an unfortunate person. And you would never on your own 
think to say those words, but for the approval of your friends who say, come let us, that you do it. Gang violence is not something new to the urban streets of the modern world. It describes a situation in which someone says, we can make quick buck if we just find some poor, helpless fellow, hit him over the head, then through our violence, we will have wealth. And so we can be tricked to thinking there is success, there is freedom, there is power in evil and violence, and we find ourselves walking deeper and deeper. And so that is why wisdom says, you see this, but there is more to it. In verse 17, it says, For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. The problem is not that the violence or that the evil or that the consequences are always apparent to us. If the birds saw the net, they, yes, wouldn't land. But the birds don't see the net. They only see the seed. They only see the bread spread on it. We only see the quick buck. And so the passage says that those who seek unjust gain end up losing their life. Wisdom helps us to see that there is evil in the world, that it has real consequences. Verse 26 through 32, as wisdom talks to those who don't listen to her, point out that there will be calamity, that there will be destruction, that there will be terror. And if they continue to not listen to her voice, she will laugh because it is what they deserve. Wisdom shows us that God knows the world in which we live. He knows the temptations that we face and the real-world implications of our foolishness. God cares and desires us not to suffer those consequences, but instead to live at ease without dread of disaster. And instead wants us to find blessing as he intends. He wants us to be safe. He wants us to reflect the beauty, justice, and purpose for which we are made. This is what wisdom is for. Well, who is wisdom for? This is perhaps just the most straightforward, simplest part of the sermon. It's the most obvious, or perhaps the one we need to pray over the most. Wisdom is for everyone. We all need it. Now, it starts in the most obvious place with the simple or with the young, with children. It starts with instruction to children. And this type of passage is repeated throughout the book of Proverbs where the parents give instructions to their child who's about to go into the world. That there are things that they haven't experienced. There are struggles, there are lies, there is deceit, there are schemes that they haven't faced before. And so they warn their children and seek to give them wisdom that they would be well equipped for what the world would offer. It's to acknowledge that there are things that we haven't experienced, that we haven't seen. Parental care wants to protect children from the harm and danger that can happen to them when they leave the house. Wisdom is for the simple and for the young. But it's not just for them. It's also for the mature or those already considered wise. Verse 5, let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. That wisdom is for those who would already be accounted wise, whether in their own eyes or the eyes of those around them. Because there is no arrival at wisdom. We never have fully plumbed the depths of the knowledge that is possible in this world. 
And so even if someone already has comparatively attained to knowledge, they've experienced a lot, they've grown in maturity, yet maybe they only have one slice of wisdom. And so as verse 5 and 6 says, they would obtain guidance from others to understand the proverbs and sayings and riddles of other wise people, that why they may be wise in one area, there are always blind spots or weaknesses in which they might grow in their knowledge. The truly wise know the limits of their wisdom, and so they need wisdom. So the old and the wise and the young and the simple, they need wisdom. The primary categories of people described in Scripture are the wise and the foolish, but there's some others as well. The wise are those that heed wisdom. As verse 7 suggests, they acknowledge the fear of the Lord that there is God and that they take God into account in how they seek out the world. The foolish, on the other hand, are those who reject wisdom. They say they've got things figured out. They know best for themselves. The foolish are not the simple. They're not the unaware or the unsure. But the foolish is those that reject guidance. That's why we're told elsewhere in Scripture, in the Psalms, that the fool says in their heart, there is no God. Notice the fool in their heart doesn't say, I don't know if there's a God. I don't believe in God. The fool rejects the truth, the very basis of wisdom, that there is a God. So there's the wise and the foolish. Then there are the simple, those who are childlike, who may not be actually young, but view the world as a naive person. And then there's the scoffer. They're mentioned briefly in this passage in verse 22. How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing? The scoffer enjoys evil, attacks wisdom. And a study of Proverbs showed that these people will receive wisdom in different ways. The wise, they seek it out. The simple will receive it upon clear teaching. The fool often doesn't recognize their need for wisdom, and it's helpful for them to see it in somewhere else. That's why parables are often helpful for the foolish, so that they can recognize the folly in someone else before they recognize it in themselves. And the scoffer, well, the scoffer needs to be humbled and broken before they will receive wisdom and truth. Yet all those categories, the wise and the simple, the foolish, the scoffer, the mature and the young, they all need wisdom. And the more we think we don't need wisdom, the more danger we're in. Some of you will recall that in your second year in high school and then your second year in college, you're referred to as a sophomore. That puts together those two Greek words, sophos, wisdom, with the word from which we get moron or fool. Because when we think we have a little knowledge, we, we've made it a year, we're freshmen, we think we know how it works, then suddenly we, we find ourselves in danger because a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. This is why five times in Proverbs it warns of being wise in our own eyes. Brothers and sisters, the, the standard for wisdom is not what we know compared to other people. The standard for wisdom is not how wise we were compared to what we used to be. The standard for wisdom comes from an apprehension that there is a God. 
This is why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, because it understands that we will never attain to the fullness of knowledge, that the standard for true wisdom is God, and so that we will always seek God in order that we would have true wisdom. It's the same thing as with righteousness. The standard for righteousness is not how righteous we are compared to others, how righteous we are compared to who we used to be, but our righteousness in the eyes of God. It's only when we understand that our righteousness is filthy rags compared to the holiness of God that we are then able to attain to righteousness by seeking it not from ourselves, but from God. And so when we understand who we are, when we understand the reality of God, we will be like the man in Mark 9 who is crying out to Jesus to heal his son afflicted by a demon. And when Jesus asked about his faith, he said, I believe, help my unbelief. And all of us, from the newborn to the most aged and wise, will respond in similar ways saying, I am wise, help my foolishness. We need more. Before we move on to the last point, I want to answer the question some of us are thinking. If the beginning of knowledge is fear of the Lord, if the fool says in his heart there is no God, does that mean unbelievers can have wisdom? Does what the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes have to say serve any point and purpose for our colleagues and neighbors and family members who don't know Christ? Let's think of it this way. When we read the Proverbs, we will recognize that many of our non-Christian friends and family, they're wise. They may be wise with their money. They may be like the ant who works hard to store up grain for the difficult winter. They may be wise in taking care of their bodies. They may be wise with their words. But it's kind of like some people that I've gotten to know over the years, especially when we were at, at Iowa, at the University of Iowa, where we had mathematicians, people who were doing masters and doctorates in mathematics who couldn't add and subtract. They could have these beautiful equations, these great equations. They could even put all the numbers in the right places, but then if they didn't have the assistance of a calculator, it didn't matter how beautiful and elegant or the fact that they had the numbers in the right places. If they don't know that 2 plus 2 is 4, it's pretty empty. Or, or maybe if you're building a house, to, you hire a contractor who does a wonderful job, but, but if you notice that they couldn't nail in a nail with a hammer, you would wonder if you could trust the rest of their workmanship. Those who don't know God can be wise, but the ground and the sufficiency of their wisdom is ultimately hollow. It will only serve them for the benefits of living in this world, not in the world made new for which the wise person is preparing, because we know this world comes to perish. But in answering the fact that they don't have true wisdom, we need to remember what the passage says, that we all need wisdom. That as soon as we might say of our non-Christian neighbor, well, you can't truly be wise because you reject God and don't know it. As soon as we would be judgmental, we ourselves are in danger of foolishness. So let us not use this as a means of pointing fingers at those who don't know God, but hope seeing in them the fact that they recognize that there's purpose, that there's beauty, that there's justice in the world, and seeking to 
point them to the very basis and foundation of it, the God who made us and loved us and sent his son to die for us. Now to the last point, though. Who is it for? It's for me. It's for my unbelieving neighbor. It's for the wise. It's for the foolish. But where is it to be found? Well, if you read a comic strip, if you watch an advertisement, wisdom is to be found on some far distant mountain that we have to trek days and weeks to find some sage or guru who has found true wisdom and enlightenment by thinking. This is the image that we are given us, but this is not the wisdom of Scripture. Where wisdom, commonly thought of, is something that we have to find in distant lands, that we have to dig down deep for, that we hope that we might discover, the picture that Scripture gives us as wisdom is something available right in front of us. It's available to us in our homes. It's available to us in our world. It cries out to us. The first place that we are to find wisdom is from our families and from parental instruction. After a general introduction about wisdom, the start in our pursuit of wisdom is a call to listen to mom and to listen to dad. The primary context in which wisdom is described as being shared is within the home and within the family. Parents who have lived and learned are to impart wisdom to their children. Some of that experience, some of that wisdom may come from their experiences, but also it is them helping their children apply the truth of what God says about the world and how God wants us to live in the world. Deuteronomy 6.4 was the center of the life of a Jewish man and woman. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. Jesus confirmed that this is the first and greatest commandment. And all other commandments hang on this command. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Pretty easily memorized verse. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, and with all your soul. Then it goes on and says, These words that I command you, you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The truth is simple. But the wisdom of comprehending that the Lord our God is one and he wants all of our love, devotion, and service is profound. And it's meant to be reinforced and modeled and demonstrated first and foremost in the household. God gives us parents. He gives us grandparents. He gives us cousins. He gives us our non-biological family in terms of those in our church, our Sunday school teachers, to help us find wisdom. Wisdom can come in pithy proverbs or puzzling parables or even straight-up warnings, but one of the things that we see is that usually wisdom comes in the context of relationship from those we respect and those who care for us. God also gives us wisdom in the world around us. The book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are full of descriptions of nature. One of the more common ones, which I already referenced, is the twofold call to go and consider the ant in chapter 6 and chapter 30. 
who diligently work storing up their food. If we look at nature, we see how the steady drip of water can reshape mountains, how a seed can split boulders, how a seeming desert can sprout into life overnight after a rainfall. The world is full of wisdom. How can that be? Isn't it just the colliding of atoms and molecules? Isn't it just chemical compounds interacting within our flesh? If there is the Lord, the covenant God, who made it, there is wisdom in the world because it's made according to his design, and he shows us the glory and wonder of himself in the world. Thirdly, in addition to the world and the family, God offers us wisdom in Scripture. It's obvious, but no less important. He gives us wisdom overtly in the commands. This you shall do, and this you shouldn't do. In the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, in stories like the story of Job, taken up in Psalms, demonstrated in the lives of men and women, some who make wise choices and some who experience consequences for their foolishness and sin. Reading scripture prayerfully, meditating upon it, gives us all kinds of knowledge, pointing us to the basis of wisdom, God himself. As our passage calls us to the word of God, as it calls us to listen to parental instruction, as it calls us to examine the world, the picture of wisdom is not some hidden, distant treasure. It is, as we see personified, calling out to us in the streets. Wisdom personified here cries aloud throughout the city, on the street, in the marketplace, at the gate where the wise people would gather. See, the problem is not that wisdom is not available. It's whether or not we will listen to her cry. Listen to verse 22. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? The issue is not that wisdom is unavailable to us. It's that we are unwilling to embrace the call of wisdom. It's not that it's not available, but we often choose to listen to the other voices in the noisy street. It's not the availability of wisdom. It's not the quietness of its voice, the difficulty of its ideas. It is our hearts. Verse 23 says, If you turn at my reproof, that word turn there is the same word that we often translate repentance. See, the issue is not wisdom withholds. It says, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. The problem is that we have hearts that resist it. Now, for the fool and the scoffer and the unwise, if the end of the story is their unwillingness to hear wisdom and the destruction that comes with it, then the story of Proverbs is a pretty unsettling one. That the wise survive and the foolish perish. When God says, don't eat of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they still do it anyway, God sends prophets who warn of the dangers of their continued pattern of sin. God sends angels And over and over, they have rejected the wisdom and truth of the living God. But unlike wisdom, God doesn't stop with crying out in the streets. God takes on flesh and dies for us who have rejected his fatherly wisdom. 
who have rejected his words in Scripture, who have rejected the testimony of the world about the majesty and glory of God. And when we would reject him, he sends his spirit to make hearts of stone become hearts of flesh, to unclog ears, to open blind eyes, so that we would not only see wisdom, but that we would see that the obstacle to wisdom is not a lack of knowledge, it is the unhealth of our hearts. And so God, knowing our foolishness, knowing our scoffing, doesn't wait for us to embrace wisdom, but comes into the world in Jesus, the living word, the living wisdom, taking on flesh. The hope for wisdom, brothers and sisters, is not our pursuit of it in the end, but of God's gracious offering it to us. Would we open ourselves to the wisdom he has, the life of beauty, the life of purpose and justice, acknowledging our need, finding it where God offers, most importantly, in himself. Let's pray. Lord, where my long words have wearied the listeners, I pray that what is true and good and beneficial will remain. Thank you that our hope is not based on the understanding of the preacher or the attention of the congregation, but upon your spirit to make the dead alive. Work your word in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.